Section two of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume three by James Boswell, Section two. We agreed to dine today at the Mitre Tavern after the rising of the House of Lords where a branch of the litigation concerning the Douglas estate, in which I was one of the council, was to come on. I brought with me Mr. Murray, Solicitor-General of Scotland, now one of the judges of the Court of Session, with the title of Lord Henderland. I mentioned Mr. Solicitor's relation, Lord Charles Hay, with whom I knew Dr. Johnson had been acquainted. Footnote voltaire in his account of the battle of fontenoy thus mentions him on était à cinquante pas de distance les officiers anglais salurent les français en autant le chapeau les officiers des gardes français lui rendirent les salutes milord charles hay capitaine au garde anglais cria Messieurs des gardes français tirés, le comte de Altoch le dit à voix haute. Messieurs, nous détirons jamais les premières tirées vous-mêmes. End of footnote. Johnson, I wrote something for Lord Charles. Footnote. Hay was third in command in the expedition to North America in 1757. It was reported that he said that the nation's wealth was expended in making sham fights and planting cabbages. He was put under arrest and sent home to be tried. Mr. Croker says that the real state of the case was that he had gone mad, and was in that state sent home. He died before the sentence of the court-martial was promulgated. End of footnote. And I thought he had nothing to fear from a court-martial. I suffered a great loss when he died. He was a mighty pleasing man in conversation, and a reading man. The character of a soldier is high. They who stand forth, the foremost in danger for the community, have the respect of mankind. An officer is much more respected than any other man who has as little money. In a commercial country, money will always purchase respect. But you find an officer who has, properly speaking, no money, is everywhere well received and treated with attention. The character of a soldier always stands him instead. Footnote. In thoughts on the coronation of George the Third, he expressed himself differently, if indeed the passage is of his writing. He says, it cannot but offend every Englishman to see troops of soldiers placed between him and his sovereign, as if they were the most honourable of the people, or the king required guards to secure his person from his subjects. As their station makes them think themselves important, their insolence is always such as may be expected from servile authority. In his journey to the Hebrides he speaks of that courtesy which is so closely connected with the military character. End of footnote. 
Boswell. Yet, sir, I think that common soldiers are worse thought of than other men in the same rank of life, such as labourers. Johnson. Why, sir, a common soldier is usually a very gross man, and any quality which procures respect may be overwhelmed by grossness. Footnote. It is not in the power even of God to make a polite soldier. Meander, quoted by Hume, Essays, Part 120. Note. End of footnote. A man of learning may be so vicious or ridiculous that you cannot respect him. A common soldier, too, generally eats more than he can pay for. But when a common soldier is civil in his quarters, his red coat procures him a degree of respect. Footnote. In Johnson's debates for 1741 is on the quartering of soldiers. By the Mutiny Act, the innkeeper was required to find each foot-soldier lodging, diet, and small beer for fourpence a day. By the Act, as amended that year, if he furnished salt, vinegar, small beer, candles, fire, and utensils to dress their victuals without payment, he had not to supply diet except on a march. The allowance of small beer was fixed at five pints a day though it was maintained that it should be six. Lord Baltimore, according to Johnson, said that as every gentleman's servants each consumed daily six pints, it surely is not to be required that the soldier should live in a perpetual state of warfare with his constitution. Burke, writing in 1794, says, In quarters the innkeepers are obliged to find for the soldiers lodging, fire, candlelight, small beer, salt, and vinegar gratis. Johnson wrote in 1758, The manner in which the soldiers are dispersed in quarters over the country during times of peace naturally produces laxity of discipline. They are very little in sight of their officers, and when they are not engaged in the slight duty of the guard, are suffered to live every man his own way. Fielding in Tom Jones humorously describes an innkeeper's grievances. End of footnote. The peculiar respect paid to the military character in France was mentioned. Boswell. I should think that where military men are so numerous, they would be less valued as not being rare. Johnson. Nay, sir, wherever a particular character or profession is high in the estimation of a people, those who are of it will be valued above other men. We value an Englishman highly in this country, and yet Englishmen are not rare in it. Mr. Murray praised the ancient philosophers for the candour and good humour with which those of different sects disputed with each other. Johnson. Sir, they disputed with good humour because they were not in earnest as to religion had the ancients been serious in their belief we should not have had their gods exhibited in the manner we find them represented in the poets the people would not have suffered it they disputed with good humour upon their fanciful theories because they were not interested in the truth of them when a man has nothing to lose he may be in good humour with his opponent Accordingly, you see in Lucien the Epicurean, 
who argues only negatively, keeps his temper. The Stoic, who has something positive to preserve, grows angry. Footnote. This alludes to the pleading of a Stoic and an Epicurean for and against the existence of the divinity in Lucien's Jupiter the Tragic. Croker. End of footnote. Being angry with one who controverts an opinion which you value is a necessary consequence of the uneasiness which you feel. Every man who attacks my belief diminishes in some degree my confidence in it, and therefore makes me uneasy, and I am angry with him who makes me uneasy. Footnote. There is a time when every man is weary of raising difficulties only to ask himself with the solution and desires to enjoy truth without the labour or hazard of contest. See Ante, May 7th, 1773, and Post, April 3, 1779, where he says, Sir, you are to a degree hurt by knowing that even one man does not believe. Hume, in his essay of parties in general, had written, Such is the nature of the human mind, that it always takes hold of every mind that approaches it, and as it is wonderfully fortified and corroborated by a unanimity of sentiments, so it is, shocked and disturbed by any contrariety. Carlyle was fond of quoting a sentence of Novalis. My conviction gains infinitely the moment another soul will believe in it. The introducing of new doctrines, said Bacon, is an affectation of tyranny over the understandings and belief of men. End of footnote. Those only who believed in revelation have been angry at having their faith called into question, because they only had something upon which they could rest as matter of fact. Murray. It seems to me that we are not angry at a man for controverting an opinion which we believe and value, we rather pity him. Johnson. Why, sir, to be sure, when you wish a man to have that belief which you think is of infinite advantage, you wish well to him, but your primary consideration is your own quiet. If a madman were to come into this room with a stick in his hand, no doubt we should pity the state of his mind, but our primary consideration would be to take care of ourselves. We should knock him down first, and pity him afterwards. No, sir, every man will dispute with great good humour upon a subject in which he is not interested. I will dispute very calmly upon the probability of another man's son being hanged. But if a man zealously enforces the probability that my own son will be hanged, I shall certainly not be in a very good humour with him. I added this illustration. If a man endeavours to convince me that my wife whom I love very much, and in whom I place great confidence, is a disagreeable woman, and is even unfaithful to me, I shall be very angry, for he is putting me in fear of being unhappy. Murray. But, sir, truth will always bear an examination. Johnson. Yes, sir, but it is painful to be forced to defend it. Consider, sir, how, should you like, though conscious of your innocence to be tried before a jury for a capital crime once a week. We talked of education at great schools, the advantages and disadvantages of which Johnson displayed in a luminous manner. 
but his arguments preponderated so much in favour of the benefit which a boy of good parts might receive at one of them. Footnote. We must own, said Johnson, that neither a dull boy nor an idle boy will do well at a great school as at a private one. On June the 16th, 1784, he said of a very timid boy, Placing him at a public school is forcing an owl upon day. Lord Shelbourne says that the first pit told him that his reason for preferring private to public education was that he scarce observed a boy who was not cowed for life at Eton, that a public school might suit a boy of a turbulent forward disposition, but would not do where there was any gentleness. End of footnote but I have reason to believe Mr. Murray was very much influenced by what he had heard to-day, in his determination to send his own son to Westminster School. Footnote. There are, wrote Hume in 1767, several advantages of a Scots education, but the question is whether that of the language does not counterbalance them, and determine the preference to the English. He decides it does, he continues, The only inconvenience is that few Scotsmen that have had an English education have ever settled cordially in their own country, and they have been commonly lost ever after to their friends. End of footnote. I have acted in the same manner with regard to my own two sons, having placed the eldest at Eton and the second at Westminster. I cannot say which is best. Footnote. He wrote to Temple on November the 28th, 1789, My eldest son has been at Eton since the 15th of October. You cannot imagine how miserable he has been. He wrote to me for some time as if from the galleys, and entreated me to come to him. On July the 21st, 1790, he wrote of his second son who was at home ill. I am in great concern what should be done with him, for he is so oppressed at Westminster School by the big boys that I am almost afraid to send him thither. On April the 6th, 1791, he wrote, Your little friend James is quite reconciled to Westminster. Southey, who was at Westminster with young Boswell, describes the capricious and dangerous tyranny under which he himself had suffered. End of footnote. But in justice to both those noble seminaries, I with high satisfaction declare that my boys have derived from them a great deal of good and no evil, and I trust they will, like Horace, be grateful to their father for giving them so valuable an education. I introduced the topic which is often ignorantly urged that the universities of England are too rich. Footnote. Dr. Adam Smith, who was for some time a professor in the University of Glasgow, has uttered in his Wealth of Nations some reflections upon this subject, which are certainly not well founded, and seem to be invidious. Boswell. End of footnote. So that learning does not flourish in them as it would do, if those who teach had smaller salaries, and depended on their assiduity for a greater part of their income. Johnson, Sir, the very reverse of this is the truth. 
the english universities are not rich enough our fellowships are only sufficient to support a man during his studies to fit him for the world and accordingly in general they are held no longer than till an opportunity offers of getting away now and then perhaps there is a fellow who grows old in his college but this is against his will unless he be a man very indolent indeed a hundred a year is reckoned a good fellowship and that is no more than is necessary to keep a man decently as a scholar we do not allow our fellows to marry because we consider academical institutions as preparatory to a settlement in the world it is only by being employed as a tutor that a fellow can obtain anything more than a livelihood to be sure a man who has enough without teaching will probably not teach for we would all be idle if we could in the same manner a man who is to get nothing by teaching will not exert himself gresham college was intended as a place of instruction for london able professors were to read lectures gratis they contrived to have no scholars whereas if they had been allowed to receive but sixpence a lecture from each scholar they would have been emulous to have had many scholars everybody will agree that it should be the interest of those who teach to have scholars and this is the case in our universities footnote gibbon denied this the diligence of the tutors is voluntary and will consequently be languid while the pupils themselves or their parents are not indulged in the liberty of choice or change of one of his tutors he wrote he well remembered that he had a salary to receive and only forgot that he had a duty to perform boswell post end of november seventeen eighty four blames dr knox for ungraciously attacking his venerable alma mater knox who was a fellow of st john's left oxford in seventeen seventy eight in his liberal education published in seventeen eighty one he wrote i saw immorality habitual drunkenness idleness and ignorance boasting obtruding themselves on public view the general tendency of the universities is favourable to the diffusion of ignorance idleness vice and infidelity among young men in no part of the kingdom will you meet with more licentious practices and sentiments and with less learning than in some colleges the tutors give what are called lectures the boys construe a classic the jolly young tutor lolls in his elbow-chair and seldom gives himself the trouble of interrupting the greatest dunce some societies would have been glad to shut themselves up by themselves and enjoy the good things of the cook and manciple without the intrusion of commoners who come for education the principal thing required is external respect from the juniors however ignorant or unworthy a senior fellow may be yet the slightest disrespect is treated as the greatest crime of which an academic can be guilty the proctors give far more frequent reprimands to the want of a band or to the hair tied in queue than to important irregularities a man might be a drunkard a debauchee and yet long escape the proctor's animadversion but no virtue could protect you if you walked out on christchurch meadow or the high street 
with a band tied too low, or with no band at all, with a pigtail or with a green or scarlet coat. Only thirteen weeks' residence a year was required. The degree was conferred without examination. After taking it, a man offers himself as a candidate for orders. He is examined by the bishop's chaplain. He construes a few verses in the Greek Testament, and translates one of the articles from Latin into English. His testimonial being received, he comes from his jollier companions to the care of a large parish. Bishop Law gave in 1781 a different account of Cambridge. There he complains, such was the devotion to mathematics that young men often sacrifice their whole stock of strength and spirits, and so entirely devote most of their first few years to what is called taking a good degree, as to be hardly good for anything else. End of footnote. That they are too rich is certainly not true, for they have nothing good enough to keep a man of eminent learning with them for his life. In the foreign universities a professorship is a high thing. It is almost as much as a man can make by his learning, and therefore we find the most learned men abroad are in the universities. Footnote. According to Adam Smith, this is true only of the Protestant countries. In Roman Catholic countries and England, where benefices are rich, the Church is continually draining the universities of all their ablest members. In Scotland and Protestant countries abroad, where a chair in a university is generally a better establishment than a benefice, by far the greater part of the most eminent men of letters have been professors. End of footnote. It is not so with us. Our universities are impoverished of learning by the penury of their provisions. I wish there were many places of a thousand a year at Oxford to keep first-rate men of learning from quitting the university. Obviously, if this were the case, literature would have a still greater dignity and splendor at Oxford, and there would be grander living sources of instruction. I mentioned Mr. Maclaurin's uneasiness on account of a degree of ridicule carelessly thrown on his deceased father in Goldsmith's History of Animated Nature, in which that celebrated mathematician is represented as being subject to fits of yawning so violent as to render him incapable of proceeding in his lecture, a story altogether unfounded but for the publication of which the law would give no reparation. Footnote. Dr. Goldsmith was dead before Mr. Maclaurin discovered the ludicrous error, but Mr. Norse, the bookseller, who was the proprietor of the work, upon being applied to by Sir John Pringle, agreed very handsomely to have the leaf on which it was contained cancelled, and reprinted without it, at his own expense. Boswell in the second edition published five years after Goldsmith's death, the story remains. In a footnote, the editor says that he has been credibly informed that the professor had not the defect here mentioned. The story is not quite as Boswell tells it. Maclaurin, writes Goldsmith, was very subject to have his jaw dislocated, 
so that when he opened his mouth wider than ordinary, or when he yawned, he could not shut it again. In the midst of his harangues, therefore, if any of his pupils began to be tired of his lecture, he had only to gape or yawn, and the professor instantly caught the sympathetic affection, so that he thus continued to stand speechless, with his mouth wide open, till his servant from the next room was called in to set his jaw again. End of footnote. This led us to agitate the question whether legal redress could be obtained, even when a man's deceased relation was calumniated in a publication. Mr. Murray maintained there should be reparation unless the author could justify himself by proving the fact. Johnson. Sir, it is of so much more consequence that truth should be told than the individuals should not be made uneasy that it is much better that the law does not restrain writing freely concerning the characters of the dead. Damages will be given to a man who is calumniated in his lifetime, because he may be hurt in his worldly interest, or at least hurt in his mind, but the law does not regard that uneasiness which a man feels on having his ancestor calumniated. Footnote. Dr. Shebeir was tried for writing a libellious pamphlet. Horace Walpole says, The bitterest parts of the work were a satire on William the Third and George the First. The most remarkable part of this trial was the Chief Justice Mansfield laying down for law that satires even on dead kings were punishable. Adieu, veracity and history! if the king's bench is to appreciate your expressions. End of footnote. That is too nice. Let him deny what is said, and let the matter have a fair chance by discussion. But if a man could say nothing against a character but what he can prove, history could not be written, for a great deal is known of men of which proof cannot be brought. A minister may be notoriously known to take bribes, and yet you may not be able to prove it. Mr. Murray suggested that the author should be obliged to show some sort of evidence, though he would not require a strict legal proof, but Johnson firmly and resolutely opposed any restraint whatever as adverse to a free investigation of the characters of mankind. Footnote what Dr. Johnson has said here is undoubtedly good sense, yet I am afraid that law, though defined by Lord Coke, the perfection of reason, is not altogether with him, for it is held in the books that an attack on the reputation even of a dead man may be punished as a libel, because tending to a breach of the peace. There is, however, I believe, no modern decided case to that effect. In the King's Bench, Trinity Term, 1790, the question occurred on occasion of an indictment, the King versus Topham, who, as a proprietor of a newspaper entitled The World, was found guilty of a libel against Earl Cowper, deceased, because certain injurious charges against his lordship were published in that paper. An arrest of judgment having been moved for, 
the case was afterwards solemnly argued my friend mr const whom i delight in having an opportunity to praise not only for his abilities but his manners a gentleman whose ancient german blood has been mellowed in england and who may be truly said to unite the baron and the barrister was one of the counsel for mr topham he displayed much learning and ingenuity upon the general question which however was not decided as the court granted an arrest chiefly on the informality of the indictment no man has a higher reverence for the law of england than i have but with all deference i cannot help thinking that prosecution by indictment if a defendant is never allowed to justify must often be very oppressive unless juries whom i am more and more confirmed in holding to be judges of law as well of fact resolutely interpose of late an act of parliament has passed declaratory of their full right to one as well as the other in matter of libel and the bill having been brought in by a popular gentleman many of his party have in most extravagant terms declaimed on the wonderful acquisition to the liberty of the press for my own part i ever was clearly of opinion that this right was inherent in the very constitution of a jury and indeed in sense and reason inseparable from their important function to establish it therefore by statute is i think narrowing its foundation which is the broad and deep basis of common law would it not rather weaken the right of primogeniture or any other old and universally acknowledged right should the legislature pass an act in favour of it in my letter to the people of scotland against diminishing the number of the lords of session published in 1785 there is the following passage which as a concise and i hope a fair and rational state of the matter i presume to quote the juries of england are judges of law as well as of fact in many civil and in all criminals trials that my principles of resistance may not be misapprehended and more than my principles of submission i protest that i should be the last man in the world to encourage juries to contradict rashly wantonly or perversely the opinion of the judges on the contrary i would have them listen respectfully to the advice they receive from the bench by which they may be often well directed in forming their own opinion which and not another's is the opinion they are to return upon their oaths but where after due attention to all the judge has said they are decidedly of a different opinion from him they have not only a power and a right but they are bound in conscience to bring in a verdict accordingly boswell the world is described by gifford in his baviad and marviad as a paper set up by a knot of fantastic coxcombs to direct the taste of the town lowndes confounds it with the world the popular gentleman was fox whose libel bill passed the house of lords in june seventeen ninety two end of footnote end of section two